Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Be in prayer pretty deeply for our country because we're, what, 30-something days, maybe even less than 30 days away from our election. And I'm telling you, man, there's a lot of underhanded evil things going on. I guess this would be my prayer. Pray that the Lord gives us some more time to do the work that we need to do as a church to continue to do the, the Great Commission, obviously, because the stuff I'm seeing is these people are popping the clutch, man. They're ready to go, and they're ready to go to a new world order, a new system, the whole thing, burn down the everything that we have ever stood for as a country. I get it, and inevitably has to eventually happen, but um, we're praying for more time. So I guess the call of the day is delay the decay, okay? <laughs> if you can remember that. Pray for the delay of the decay, and just to give us the more time that as we're here, that the Lord give us that freedom to do the work we need to do for Him. So I want to thank you for coming. Thank you to our online audience watching us from all over the United States and around the world, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 12 today, and we're going to take our time to go through this because now we're unpacking a critical text that that really goes into why the Lord is delivering Israel, how he's delivering Israel, and then eventually appoints to our deliverance in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And uh, you'll see a lot of parallels that point forward to what the Messiah will do in this discussion of the Passover. And so we're going to take our time. We're going to probably break this up in a couple of sermons, but I want to see every you to see every nuance that's there so that you can see the richness of the messaging that God was doing through this, okay? I think you'll really enjoy this as we study this. The title of the message is, When I See the Blood, and the blood will be the key aspect in this text, the Lamb's blood, obviously referring eventually to the Messiah's blood that would be shed. And let me tell you a little bit about this, how important understanding the blood of the Messiah, the death of the Messiah is for us Christians. I grew up Catholic, as many of you know. I went to Catholic school, and every day you'd go to class, and there was a crucifix on the wall there. And we would pray to the crucifix, and we would say our prayers and things of that nature. And so I was aware of Jesus dying on a cross, but what I did not understand is why he died. I didn't understand what was the purpose, what was behind it all, because they honestly never explained it. I hate to tell you that, but they never explained it. So I went to church and church, mass after mass after mass, didn't understand what I was doing, didn't understand what in the world they're doing. But I knew about Jesus, I knew he was God, but I didn't understand his work and what he had done. Because in the Catholic Church, it's a works-based salvation. You've got to believe in Jesus for what, I don't know. It's, but then you've got to do all these sacraments in order to ensure that you have eternal life. Baptism, confirmation, marriage, uh, last rites, all this other stuff. Basically a works-based salvation. It's Jesus plus this. So on my way to hell, growing up that way, because I didn't understand who Jesus really, what he did. And, and then I got saved at 19. And then finally understood, oh, that's why he died, to secure my salvation. And understood that he shed his blood and died 
for my sins. And, and that's when the realization hit me that I had been lost up until that point. I was on my way to hell had I not got saved. So understanding this theologically is going to be very important. Now, again, you will see the typologies in the Passover lamb, but I want to bring out all the theological nuances that are there for us to have a full understanding of our salvation and our walk with the Lord. So let's jump into the text. We'll get as far as we can get today, and we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 12. It says this in verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So, again, we're in the context of the plagues of Egypt. This is getting ready for the last plague, the death of the firstborn. And he's now wanting Israel to do something in preparation for this judgment. Because if Israel doesn't do this, they too will get caught up in this judgment as well. And so they must do what Yahweh tells them to do. Now, the first thing he tells them is, this is going to be your new calendar. Um, starting the calendar with this month. Now, the month that he's referring to is in the Hebrew is Abib or Aviv. It got changed to the name Nisan after the Babylonian captivity. But in our calendar, it is roughly sometime late March, early April. It depends on the moon. Because the Hebrew calendar is based on the lunar calendar, not the sun calendar. Okay, What's the point here? Before Yahweh creates this nation of Israel, and he's going to give them a calendar in which to operate by, but his calendar, Yahweh's calendar, is different than the pagan calendars. The pagan culture of that day had a calendar based on the agriculture. So the end of the year came at the end of the harvest, and you started the new year in November, December, then spring, and whatnot. It was, and it, the pagan calendar was also tied to sexual fertility as well. So they worshipped these pagan gods and sexual fertility rites in order that the gods would give them the agriculture and give them the rain and all that stuff for the harvest and the crops. So what God did is saying, I need you to be different. The calendar I'm putting you on is based on my actions, not on the pagan fertility rites. And I want you to understand that when we look at the Bible, the Bible is how we calculate history. It is based on the events that God did through history. That's how you and I calculate things. That's where we know where we're at in the time scale. Now, yeah, we have our calendar, we have our months and days and years and things of that nature. But really, the way you and I are supposed to calculate our lives is based on God's events. Now, in a, in a general understanding of time, we are in the church age. And because we're in the church age, the time or the chronology of the church age is found in Revelation 2 through 3 of the seven churches of the book of Revelation. Those give the chronology and the highlights of this age, and, or of the age of the church. And, and each age or era of the church is a dominant church in that era. Well, folks, the dominant church that's now uh, prevalent is Laodicea. So you know where you're at in God's chronology. We're in the last days of the church because of the Laodicean era. So that's kind of how we know where we're at with God's timescale. That means we're in this, obviously in the, the season of the rapture. We're in the season of the last days, the tribulation and whatnot. That helps us to understand as believers. Now, 
Let me move it to a more personal application. Not only did he do this for Israel and the church, but he does it to you individually. And what I mean by that is your life is not marked out by how old you are. And thank God for that. So what it is, is your life is marked out by God's events with you. God working with you and you being on task and on your mission for him. Because that's how Israel will mark out their days is basically their calling and God's history. Okay? And that's the same thing for you and I. So your age, your spiritual age is based on when you accepted Christ. And from that, your age is based on how you grow, how you mature in the Lord. It's not based on your chronology of age. It's based on your spiritual age. You could be a young man and have a, 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 a long age. You can be old, but have a short age spiritually. Your Christian life is based on your spiritual age, if that makes sense. And your events with the Lord and his activities in your life and you working with him and, and growing to be more like Christ. And that's how you really should mark your life. It's unfortunate that we adopt a pagan thing of counting the years. Stop counting the years. Count the events of God using your life. Let me add one more thing. Your life is not finished when you reach a certain age. Your life is only finished when you complete the mission for your life. End of story. That's when the expiration date on you is. Is when you finish your mission. Now, many of us... Might finish our mission and the rapture will happen and the rapture will end our mission. I'm hoping that happens because I'm tell you what, I'm looking for the upper taker, not the undertaker. Okay? <laughs> so we're hoping that day will come for all of us and we'll be with the Lord at the same time. So anyway, this is a big deal for Israel to understand their calendar. Verse three. Speak to all the congregation of Israel. Now, notice that the word all is used, and all means all. It means I want everybody that's a nation, part of the nation of Israel to do this. They must do this. I'm requiring that all the nation shall do this. It's talking about the corporate solidarity of Israel as a corporate body. It also speaks forward to the Messiah creating a, another corporate body called the body of Christ. So in a lot of the corporateness of Israel, you will see the corporateness in the church. And so here's the principle. God says, I don't want anyone missing in this. And now we go into the, to the church and he says the same thing in another way. Do not forsake the gathering of yourselves as some are in the habit of doing so. So the command is on us as well. I need all the church to be gathered when the church assemblies. I don't want somebody out doing Christianity on their own as an individual. The same thing applies to us as it did to Israel. I want the corporate body together because there is where the power is. There is where the body of Christ functions correctly. Unfortunately, now you have many people believing that they can do Christianity on their own without the body of Christ. Good luck with that. That's not how it's supposed to be played. But unfortunately, people think they can do that. Now I understand that people there can't do that. They're shut-ins. They can't move. They can't, you know, um, they're, they're in a rest home or whatnot. And I understand there's people that have contacted us from Australia and saying, Brandon, there's not a church. 
in 200 miles from <laughs> in our area. So they are stuck where they're stuck, and I get that. I tried to find a church for some guy in Australia one time, a couple of weeks back, and I said, well, dude, the nearest church that I could find that's healthy is about 300-and-something miles away. Are you willing to make the drive? I didn't hear back from him, but we'll see. I don't know if he went. But he was in, uh, I can't remember, the top, the northeast part of Australia, and there was no churches around him. It was just desolate, man. And so anyway, I get that. There are all the exceptions. But when you can, you are to assemble as Israel is to assemble for that corporate solidarity. Continue on. It says this, saying, On the tenth of the month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. So basically is this. Based on how many people are in your household, I want, I want you to do the calculations to determine how many people you will need to eat the entire lamb, because I don't want any leftovers. So I need you to calculate how much meat each one will need, and base that on how many people are going to sit at your table, okay? So that might mean that you had to go to the neighbor, or so, and have two neighbors come together, or whatever it took to eat the entire lamb, because left overs are not allowed and everyone who comes to this dinner must eat no one can refrain you must do this okay this is part of Yahweh's requirements okay for the Passover now what what I want you to see in this is that I'll talk about the leftovers in just a bit when I talk about the sacrifice of the the, the lamb but I, what I want to focus in on is this solidarity, is that I don't want anyone missing this. I want all to eat. I don't want anyone left out. And again, it speaks to, eventually, even the church, that God desires all his believers to come together and do something, as much as the church does that. And so, We don't necessarily celebrate the Passover. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper remembers what the Messiah did as the Passover remembers the sacrificial lamb. And so even in the Lord's Supper, he he doesn't want people to miss the Lord's Supper because of that solidarity. And what was happening, like, for instance, in the Corinth church, some were eating the supper before the other people came. And so they were missing out on the supper. And so it's, it, it's integral to understand that us moving forward as a church, that you and I, in the times we live, will need each other. We cannot have people missing, is the idea. And so that's this, this whole theme. I want all of them to eat. I want all of them to partake and participate. No one's sitting on the sidelines. Let's continue on. Verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You, might, you may take it from the sheep or from the goat. So whatever was available, typically it would, be a, it would be a sheep. Now look at the qualifications and the criteria in this passage that it's giving for them for this particular sacrifice. One, there's no blemish. Okay, So the idea, whether it's the wool, whether it has a broken leg, a missing ear, missing eye, whatever, some deformity... They cannot use it. 
And again, this is not because of the change of the taste of the meat when they eat it. It has to do with the symbolism involved in it. Because that lamb, that sacrifice must be perfect. God only accepts a perfect sacrifice. And hence, this points forward to the sacrifice of the Messiah. Messiah would have no blemishes. And what do I mean by that? No sin. The Messiah is sinless, which makes him the perfect sacrifice for us. The second thing is he must be a male because Messiah is a male. It must be one year old, at least one years. Okay, so what does that mean? It wasn't a baby lamb. When you look at a lamb and, he's, and after one year, the lamb will be fully grown. So it's young and it's fully grown. So when Messiah sacrificed himself, he was fully grown, but yet he was young, if you recall. He was about 33 years old when Messiah makes the sacrifice for us. Again, all pointing to what Jesus would do. Now, if you recall... The sacrificial language is all through the Gospel of John. This is interesting, because you'll he'll have John the Baptist say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, if you recall that. And so already, even the prophets understood that Messiah is destined to sacrifice himself. They knew that. And so John the Baptist speaks about this. And so that's all Passover language okay, that John's employing. Let's move to verse 6 now. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Now, they would pick out the lamb on the 10th day and then take it home with them in their house until the 14th day. And the 14th day uh, from the 10th day would be a time of inspection. Now, again, I want you to imagine yourself in the Hebrew culture and you lived in a Hebrew home. In the Hebrew home, it had levels. The first level is where your animals went at night. The second level is where you did your kitchen, your cooking, your sleeping, and all that. The top level of the top house is where you went at night to catch the cool of the breeze or whatnot. So a lot of people spent time on their rooftops. And that's where you would have your leisure time is on your rooftop. So you lived in the middle, but your animals were on the bottom. Okay. So they were to take this lamb and, and take it among their other animals and inspect it for four days. And the kids would look at it, you and your wife would look at it, and you would look at this lamb to make sure to check everything that it doesn't have any deformities or any problems with it. During those four days, as it was in your house, the kids would probably get real accustomed to it. It would become like a pet, and the kids would probably get really fond of the lamb. And so would you, and so would your family, because it's with you, and you're getting to know it. You're learning all the intricacies of the lamb as you research it and look at it and whatnot. So there would be a growing attachment to this little animal, okay? Kids would like it, like a, like a pet dog, you know what I mean? It is, it, they would gravitate to it, okay? This period of time between Nissan 10 and Nissan 14, it's time of inspection, so now let's take that and put it on the Messiah. As the Messiah is the Lamb of God, 
He has his time of inspection as the Lamb of God. You recall, it starts on Palm Sunday and it ends, with Palm Sunday was the 10th of Nisan, and then it would end on the 14th of Nisan, which was Wednesday. This is why the Gospel of John will spend an inordinate amount of time speaking about the last week of the Messiah when he's in Jerusalem dealing with the religious leaders. When you look at this in the Gospel of John, from Sunday to Wednesday, Jesus is in a constant battle with the religious leaders, theologically, going back and forth. They're trying to trip him up, doing all this, and he just brilliantly masters them theologically, to the point that many of them can't even ask him any more questions. He's just put them down. They don't even know what to say anymore. And again, the official title on Messiah from the religious leaders, not all of Israel, but on the religious leaders, is that he does these powers by the power of Beelzebub, prince of demons, the lord of the flies. He is not doing things by the Holy Spirit. And that's the official edict from the religious leaders. Okay, so according to the religious leaders, the Passover lamb is unclean. Okay, that's their determination. That Jesus of Nazareth is unclean. But he's not, as you know. He's sinless. And God knows that. So guess what happens? If you were doing the Passover with a Passover lamb, on the 14th day, the father of the home would have to declare the lamb is perfect. The lamb has no blemishes. And you would have to make that statement on the 14th day. Okay? The lamb is good for sacrifice. It is perfect. Unblemished. Okay. But the religious leaders are not saying it. And yet the sacrifice of the Messiah is coming on Friday. And they won't say it. They refuse to admit that Jesus is sinless, that he is the perfect sacrifice. And it has to be stated. So guess what happens? It's brilliant how God works. And he does this. So, the religious leaders hand Jesus off to Pilate. And you know about Pontius Pilate, and you know about the interrogation he has with the Messiah, and you know about the interactions. And three times, Pilate goes before the Jews, the religious leaders, and says what? I find no fault in him to condemn him. Three times he tells the Jews this. There is nothing worthy in him to condemn him. Hence, the jokes on the religious leaders. It's almost like God the Father said, fine, you don't want to admit that my son that I sent to you, that is the Jewish king and Messiah, you won't admit that he's unblemished, then I'll have a pagan Roman governor declare that the Passover lamb is clean. And so Pontius Pilate doesn't even know he's admitting it, but he's declaring Jesus clean. And hence, once the declaration has been made, the Messiah then can be sacrificed because he's been declared clean. Pretty interesting, isn't it, how it parallels the two. Let's continue on. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. We don't want to miss that one. Twilight's a big deal in the scriptures. Let me show you a picture of Israel. This is a picture of Jerusalem at twilight. 
Now, again, this is the city where Jesus was sacrificed at twilight. Now, here's what I want you to think about. In the Jewish concept, twilight for them was a bridge between the old day and the new day. The new day for the Jewish people starts at night, starts at sundown. Remember, it goes off the pattern of Genesis, right? There's evening and then morning, the first day, and so forth. That's how the Jewish day works. It's different than ours. We think of a new day in the morning. They think of it at night, okay? So twilight was this link or this bridge between the old day and the new day. It was a sacred time, okay? Guess what time twilight started? Three o'clock in the afternoon to sundown is considered twilight, okay? It's the bridge, the link between the old day and the new day. Tell me this, you knowing your Bible very well, Jesus is on the cross, he's put up there at nine o'clock. Wrath of man till 12. 12 to 3 is, is he experiencing the wrath of God, right? And then what happens at 3 o'clock? Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Messiah gives up his spirit and he physically dies on the cross. Christ didn't physically die from the torture. He actually gave up his own life. He could keep living all he wanted to, but he gave up his own life, Right? And at 3 o'clock, he gives up his life. And what time is 3 o'clock? The beginning of twilight. He's buried in Joseph Arimathea's tomb before sundown. That period of twilight, please understand, what the Passover lamb symbolizes is the period of time where the death of the Messiah would occur. And Messiah is the link between our old life and our new life, between the old day that we lived in and the new day that we have in Christ. He is the twilight, the link, the bridge between our abundant life and our old life. It's twilight. That's why it happened at twilight. That's why the lamb will be sacrificed at twilight. That's a very Jewish concept. And I want to bring that out so you understand the richness of all of what's happening here. Again, if you were a Jew and you were watching Jesus die on the cross and you saw all this play out, you would instantly trigger all these thoughts. He's dying at twilight. He's the Passover lamb. All this stuff would have been triggered in your head. He is the Messiah. Let's continue on. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Now, let's explain now what happens. So you have this lamb, and the the family has it, and the father would be responsible for the sacrifice in this situation. Later on, when the tabernacle and the temple was made, they would take the sacrifice to the priest, and the priest would handle this. So at this point in time, in Egypt, the fathers of the homes are handling this. So again, I want everybody to uh, put yourself in the shoes of an average Israeli father that must do this. And everybody needs to watch this. Everybody will see this. They take this lamb that they have been fond of for the last four days. It has been declared clean, and therefore, they must sacrifice it. So what you would do is you would have this lamb, and the father would get down, hold the lamb in his hands, and have a knife in this hand, and then would come under the lamb's neck and cut the carotid artery. Now, 
when they've studied this, what they find is the animal doesn't feel any pain. It just, once they slice the carotid artery, it just passes out. So there's no pain involved in the animal. Okay? So it's brilliant how God devised the whole system and the animal sacrificial system. There's no pain involved. It's just, they, they pass out. Okay? But I want you to imagine you getting on your knee as a father, and you have this lamb that the kids have been fond of, and then you have to take a knife and have a basin underneath the lamb's neck and slice the lamb's neck and let the blood pour out of the lamb as you hold this dead lamb in your hand while the blood drains out into the basin. Now, in cotton candy Christianity, they don't talk about this because blood is too gory for them. Blood is just really sickening to them. They don't even have crosses in their churches. They put up rainbow flags instead. They don't ever talk about sin or judgment or blood. It's just, that's past our taste. We're more sophisticated than that. No, we are not. The average Hebrew children watched in amazement as the life of the lamb drained out of its neck into the basin and watched the lamb die in front of them as every Jewish father told them, this is the price of sin. You cannot get away from it. Don't look away, children. Look at what our sin does. It creates death. And God has provided a substitute so that we don't die. And you need to look upon it. He would tell Israel when they were getting bit by the snakes in the desert, when they were rebelling, and Moses created a bronze serpent on a staff. You remember that? And Moses said what? Look at it. Look, don't take your eyes off it. Look. So many people want to move their head away from the cross and not see how bad it was for the Messiah. They, they, they dumb it down. They, they make it just like nothing happened. And the parents, you know, the, the, from that cotton candy version of Christianity, uh, we, we just don't want to expose our kids to it. Well, God exposed the Hebrew kids to it. Maybe that's what people need to understand. They need to understand the price of sin. It's death. And so every Hebrew child watched this little lamb give up its life and watched the blood pour out. Now, notice what he says. After that's poured out, what are they to do? They're to apply it to the door. And this is what you would have done in that time period if you took that lamb's blood and put it on the top post and then on the two posts. On the sides. This is a, 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 a great picture of what the Hebrew homes looked like. Okay? Now, there's something there I'm going to bring out. But again, hold on to this thought about the door. I want to focus in on they had to apply the blood to the door. It wasn't enough just to have the blood of the lamb in the basin. They actually had to take the blood and apply it. In order to be effectual, they had to apply it. If they didn't apply it, the destroying angel would kill them. Okay? So I want you to think about, what is the spiritual significance of applying the blood? How do you and I, which I was never taught this, apply the shed blood, the death of the Messiah, to us. 
How is it applied to us? It's one thing to know that Jesus died on a cross like I grew up knowing about, but I had never applied it. How do you and I apply it? I want you to think about that. I'm going to give you the answer right now. I'll give it in just a bit. But it's the application of the, of the death of the Messiah. I'll come to that. Let's continue on. Look at verse 21 and 22. I'm going to jump a little bit down. Gives us some more details. And this is where, how they applied it, okay? Verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourself according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. We'll talk more about not going out of the house later, but I want to focus in on the application of the blood is made by a particular plant that grows in the Middle East called hyssop. Let me show you a picture of what hyssop looks like. It's a flowering plant, and the stalks where the plant, the flower is, it's like a sponge. It soaks up stuff. Let me show you another picture real quick so you get a better idea. This is how it looks at when it's growing in the field. And you would take a bunch of that, and the Hebrews would grab a handful of that, and then use those flowers to soak up the blood, and then take that hyssop and apply it to the lentil and the, so, the two doorposts. Apply it to the top, to the sides of the door. Again, look at the motion. Top, sides, with hyssop. Okay. The way you applied the blood was through this plant, hyssop. Okay? This is how you apply the salvation that Christ provides through his sacrifice to your account. Okay? You have to use hyssop. So hyssop, if you look at it, it's just a little flowering plant. It's delicate. It's fragile. It's, it's, it's weak. Because if you would dip it in blood... The, the, the flowers wouldn't stay stiff. They would bend over because they couldn't support the weight of the blood. They would just bend over and you had to really just dab it on and flick it kind of in that motion because the, the flowers would be back and forth because they're so fragile, so weak. There's a one-to-one correspondence with hyssop to faith. What is the only thing you need to do in order to receive the benefit of the Messiah's death, what did Jesus say? Believe in me and I will give you eternal life. The hyssop represents that weak faith, that seed as small as the grain of a mustard seed, That when you first believe, you don't have a lot of faith, but you just have enough to believe that Jesus died for your sins and you're a sinner. You have that just a little amount of faith and that's enough to save you. Is that little faith to believe that Messiah died for you. And when you believe, the blood and death of Messiah is then applied to you. Now, as we grow in the Lord, our faith gets stronger 
We grow to know the Lord better, and we keep getting stronger in our faith as we grow. But when you first believe, it was barely there. You just had enough, enough there to be saved. It was weak. It was, but it's what applied the blood. See, I never knew that. I thought you worked for salvation as a Catholic. I didn't know. It's just simply believe in the blood and death of the Messiah, and you will be saved. I didn't know that. And I had just a little bit amount of faith, just a small smidgen of faith when I was 19 and said, Lord, I believe that. Your name's now written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And at that point, the journey starts. That's what hyssop reminds us of, that weakness of initially believing in the Messiah. Let's continue on. Now, what I want to show you now is the door. And I want to make some, some points about that, so... Let's go to the door one, and I want you to look at this, and I want you to look at this very intently. This is what the door looked like once you were done applying the blood. Now, I want you to see something there, and I think it's obvious what you can see there. As the way they would apply the blood on the top and the sides, look at the formation of it. Do you see it? You would cross it over, Come down, you're making a giant X as you use the hyssops to make the blood on the door as God prescribed it. Now look further. You can see the crown of thorns. You can see the nails. You can see the sign, King of the Jews, above his head, can't you? Why did Jesus say, I am the door? Do you see it? The door on the Jewish homes was a picture of the cross. Let's add more th two things to this. Go to the next slide. In the Hebrew, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet is the Tav. T-A-V, Tav. The Hebrew letter looks like a door, doesn't it? This is the modern Tav, okay? It looks like a door. Of course it does. Of course it looks like a door. It's supposed to look like a door. Now, as you can see that, the Hebrew is an alphanumeric system just like the Greek, which means that not only do the letters represent letters, but they represent numbers as well. Okay? So let's just focus on the Tav right now. So in the next slide, let me show you something about this. There's the Hebrew alphabet. The Tav, according to the original Hebrew, the Paleo-Hebrew, the original Hebrew Moses and them would have used, the Tav meant to mark or seal. To mark or seal. So the doors were marked with the blood and the doors were sealed by the blood to protect those inside the door from the destroying angel, from death, right? So tav means to mark or seal. Now, if I go to the Paleo-Hebrew, which is the original Hebrew of what it looked like, and if you can see that, it's hard to see on that slide, but you have the, the, uh, the Paleo-Hebrew on the second category. You have the name, the Alif, and then you have the Bet, Gamil, Dalit, and you, you move through. On the second category, you have the original Paleo-Hebrew, Okay. Here's what I want you to note. Go down to the Tav, 
And look what the original Hebrew marking for the Tav was. Oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Do you see it? The Tav, this is how you would have, in Paleo-Hebrew, how you would have made the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet is you would have made a cross. This is a Tav. The Tav in the Hebrew means the seal of God. It means the mark of God. That whoever has the seal of God has the mark of God. Guess what the mark of God is then? The Tav. The Tav is the cross. The door is forming a cross. The cross is not only an instrument of execution of Messiah, but it is the symbol of the door and the seal, which is on you spiritually, that you don't see. But guess who sees it? Satan and the demons and the fallen angels and other angels see the mark. And in the spiritual realm, you are marked with the Tav. So somewhere on your body, in the spiritual realm, they see the Tav, which is nothing but a cross. Isn't that amazing? We're not done yet. It goes deeper. Like I said, the Hebrew is an alphanumeric system. So if you go back, uh, go, go to my next slide real quick. So just real quick, when, just as an, an aside here. When you see in Isaiah, it says that I am the Alif and the Tav. Or in the Greek, it would be I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end, right? What, in the Paleo-Hebrew, Alif is the head of a bull in, in Paleo-Hebrew, which means the leader, the strength, the ox. It means God, okay? You'd, you kind of see why they made a golden calf, right, off the Paleo-Hebrew? Because that was a representation of God, the, 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 this, this, this first letter, and then I am the Alif and the Tav, and the Tav is obviously two marks forming a cross. So that's, God is saying that. I am this. Okay, so the mark of God is, is this covenant sign. Okay, let's go to the next one. That's just an aside. So you can see the Hebrew alphabet. This is, this is a modern day Hebrew, and see, uh, you've got to read Hebrew from right to left. And so at the bottom, you see the Tav on the very bottom, go right to left, and you'll see the Tav on that side, right? It looks like a door. What is the numeric value of the Tav? Because it's an alphanumeric system. 400. What's that? What's the big deal about 400? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Everything means something, right? Everything. We know that it's the mark of God. We know it's the seal of God. We know it for the original payload was a cross. But the numeric value adds something else you need to know about the Tav. How many years was the Jews in persecution according to the scriptures? 400 years. Do you know when those 400 years started? I'll, I'll give you exactly when they started. They started at the weaning of Yitzhak, or Isaac. The weaning, they would have a weaning party, a weaning celebration in the Jewish culture when the child was weaned from its mother. And typically it was about five years old, okay? So when Abraham had this celebration for Yitzhak, at that party, the persecution started. Do you remember at the party how Yitzhak was persecuted. 
You remember? He had an older brother, which Abraham made a huge mistake by going down to Egypt. He brought an Egyptian back. You remember her name? Hagar. She's Egyptian. Sarah can't have a baby. Abraham makes a mistake and thinks, well, I know I'm promised a child. I know I'm promised a son. So Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham, and they have a child by the name of Ishmael. And then God corrects the situation and says, no, no, no. Sarah, your wife, is going to have the promised child. Yitzhak and the uh, Abrahamic covenant will go through him and his progenitors, the Jews. Ishmael, at the party, starts mocking Yitzhak. At that point, Sarah says, you got to get her and him out of here. You remember that scene? Enough is enough. I am not going to take him persecuting my child. And so at that point, what does Abraham do? He kicks Hagar and Ishmael, and Ishmael has been a thorn in the side of the Jews till this day, hasn't he? He persecutes them constantly, doesn't he? He's related to them. His father is Abraham, but he is not the son of promise. He is a wild donkey of a man, and according to scriptures, he will fight constantly with his relatives. That's why the Middle East will never be figured out by Jared Kushner. Sorry, it's just not going to happen. Because this goes all the way back to that. So, my friends, the time of persecution of the Jews starts in the persecuting of Yitzhak by Ishmael, and still continues today. But anyway, the time of affliction continues on, continues on for 400 years, and it's going to end tonight, basically. Now, you'll see another term in the, in, the, in the scriptures, and it refers to the sojourning of Israel for 430 years. So what you do is you add that 400 years of affliction, but the first 30 were, was when Abraham was called out of Ur into the land of Canaan. So you add those 30 years, that gives you the 430, and then 400 years of affliction. So those are not a contradiction. It's trying to say these are the sojourning years and these are the years of affliction. Okay. Now let's come back to the text. So 400 means... Affliction. Affliction. And the affliction now is going to end on Passover, right? It's it. It's done. Egyptian is not, the Egyptians are not going to do persecution anymore of the Jews. God is setting them free. And so it's over. It's over. It is finished. You heard that term before? The affliction, it is finished on Passover. Go to the cross. Now go to the cross. The cross is a giant tav. It is the mark of God. It is the seal of God. It also is 400, which means affliction has now ended. And when Jesus finished his time of taking the wrath of God at three o'clock. He said, I thirst. And then what did he say? Tetelestai. It is finished. 
The affliction of the Messiah is now over. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Messiah's sacrifice is over now. We don't need to afflict him anymore. Like when I was at a Catholic church, we had mass, and every mass was a re-sacrificing of the Messiah. You don't do that. The blood of Christ is precious. You don't keep re-sacrificing them over and over again because then you're starting to trample on the blood and saying that the blood of the Messiah is not valuable enough. The blood and the death, when he says it's finished, it is sufficient for salvation. There is nothing else we need to do. No works, nothing. It is solely by his death and shed blood. 400. The Tav means it's finished. Let's go on, verse 8. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night. So the average Passover, they all who were there had to eat the flesh. Now, no leftovers, everyone had to eat. And again, this is so rich, it points forward. It points forward to the Messiah. Look what the Messiah said in John. And it's referring to this Passover. Again, the declaration is Jesus is the Passover lamb. So he's going to explain this. Just like you would eat the Passover lamb, look what Jesus says. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. You would eat bread during the Passover, right? We'll get to that. If anyone eats of this bread, for he will live forever. He will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're not getting the metaphor. He's using their own language of Passover language, of eating the lamb. Okay? And they're not getting it. This is how far removed the religious leaders had become. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is the food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, what this is, what Messiah is using is typical Jewish language of a remez. And a remez is a reminder of what happened previously in the past. The Passover. He's using Passover language. And he's not saying, be cannibals. He's not saying that at all. It's metaphoric language. Because eating is a metaphor for believing. What do you mean? Well, salvation is offered to you and I, isn't it? Free gift. It's put on a platter right in front of you. Do you want this? And you have to accept it. So as someone puts food in front of you, bread or wine or whatever, you, you have a responsibility to take the bread and the wine, right? You're responsible for accepting the gift, right? And then as you accept it, you just can't accept it and not partake in it. You have to eat it, which means you have to believe or take it into your soul. You believe in your heart. You believe in your soul. You can't counterfeit this. You have to actually take it in and believe. Once you take it in, what does the metaphor of eating do? Well, the food then comes into your stomach and then it metabolizes and the food actually becomes part of you. 
Oh, so when you believe in the Messiah, he actually becomes part of you. Now, not you and Messiah are, are, are symbolically connected, you know, in, in this quasi weird uh, new age I concept. No, what I'm talking about is this. The new nature that has been given to you by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit is the life of Christ in you. So Messiah in the new nature lives in you. You're also indwelt by the Holy Spirit as well. Your body now becomes a tabernacle that enshrines the Shekinah glory of the Holy Spirit and the new nature of the Messiah that's been put in you. So it does become part of you. That's why Paul said, do not dishonor your bodies. Because he was like, for instance, they were uniting themselves with temple prostitutes. And he says, if you unite with a temple prostitute, you're uniting Jesus with them. Don't do that. So inside of you, you carry, you've metabolized, so to speak, and Christ now dwells in you. And just that's why he wanted everyone to eat of the Passover lamb. It symbolizes believing. Continue on. It says, roasted in fire, I'll talk about that, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Now, I'll talk about the unleavened bread because that's a whole other section that, that comes in the text later on. I'll also talk about the fire later on as well. But this is where I'm going to end our discussion with the bitter herbs. And this points into our, our, uh, our application. In the Jewish culture, today, when they celebrate the Passover, you can see there on the screen, horseradish. And if you ever eat horseradish, you know what it does to you. It lights you up, right? It's bitter, it's very hot, but, yeah, it'll clear your sinuses very well. But the other thing is, you get too much, guess what happens to your eyes? They tear up. You'll actually cry if you get really hot horseradish, right? Okay, Why? Because when God told them, I want you to remember the bitterness of your slavery and your affliction among the Egyptians, I don't ever want you to forget that. So year after year at the Passover, they'll eat the bitter herbs, they'll eat the horseradish, which causes them to cry. Now, why would he do that? It's very important to understand where you and I came from. He wanted the Israelites to constantly look backwards Look where you came from. You were slaves in Egypt. Your master was Pharaoh. You were a master to your slave masters. And I, the God of the universe, redeemed you and pulled you out of that mess. He wanted them to always remember that. And the same is true even for the Lord's Supper. What do we do? Do this in remembrance of me. Do this with the idea of what I did for you. Don't forget, he is saying, where you came from. You and I were in the pit. We were in the muck and the mire. We were blind. We didn't know where we were going in life. We were lost. And the grace of God came to us and said, do you want the free gift of salvation? I will rescue you from your slave master, the sin nature. I will rescue you from your master, Satan, and pull you out of the kingdom of darkness and put you into the kingdom of the Son, which the Father loves. 
Do you want that? Yes. We all said yes. I do. I want salvation. I want out of the kingdom of darkness. Great. And you did that. But now, as we grow, our command is, remember. Remember where you came from. Remember who you were before I touched your life. Remember the messes that you were in. Remember you were dying. Remember you were lost. Remember you were going to hell without me. Remember. Look what Peter says in this one passage. It's part of our application. He's talking to um, believers, and he's talking about believers who are not growing, not progressing in their maturity with the Lord. And he says, those who continue to progress will always remember, but those who don't progress forget. Look what he says, verse 9. For he who lacks these things, the idea of growing, becoming more mature, is short-sighted, even to blindness. He's talking about believers becoming blind to themselves. Blind to themselves. And has what? Forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. So the idea is, if we don't remember, we won't grow. And if we stop remembering where we came from, what happens implied in this verse is that we will actually go back into our old pattern of living because you have forgotten where you came from. The twilight reminds us, out of death came life. The bridge is the Messiah. The old day is over. The new day has dawned. The link between the two days has happened in your life and mine. And I pray anyone listening on the internet or anyone here that hasn't made that decision for the Messiah would simply believe in his sacrifice on the cross, believe who he is. Understand he died on the cross, was buried and rose on the third day and offers his life to them if they will only believe. Let's pray. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.